Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Hey guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Dear Doc Podcast. This is a part of our mini-series that we're doing on different types of business models in dentistry and, and what their benefits and detriments are. Today, we're really excited to be here with Dr. Josh Brower, uh, who you may know of as an implant educator, uh, but, but more to the point, he's a super GP. Uh, Josh, tell me in your words, what does that mean? Before we get into the specific business models you've covered, in, in, in your mind, what is a super GP? Well, a super GP, I think, is um, somewhat different in that it's a general practitioner who's been uh, practicing for quite a long time and has specialty training in a number of different fields so that by the end of their training, there's really very little that they couldn't do, but they do still refer out. Um, I think it's probably not in the first 10 or even 15 years of your practice, you know, because I think by the time you graduate from dental school, unless you did multiple specialties, you just can't take the time to get that training in. So I would say overall, it's just someone that has a lot of advanced training and a lot of experience so that you feel very comfortable with the number of procedures. You know, like um, the AGD has their masters, you know, uh, the MAGD, the FAGD, it kind of just shows how much CE you've taken. My CE cycles run four to 500 credits, you know, every CE cycle. And I've been doing that for over 20 years. So right. it's a lot of education that's after school. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I can attest to how expensive that becomes. Uh, but at the same time, it, it broadens your practice to such an extent that it really is worth it down the line. So talk to us a little bit about your practice. Sure. So my practice right now, um, this one that I have is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I started it from scratch about. Um, 10 years ago. Then I have uh, one practice partner here who's also an experienced dentist with over 10 years of practice. Um, so I have basically an associate, but she's also a partner. Uh, I've had some previous practice models and I wanted to talk a little bit about those and kind of how I became the super GP model for this right. practice. So uh, about the first 10 years of my private practice, I practiced by myself. And I did not realize due to my specialty training that other dentists were not doing everything I was doing. I just wasn't really referring much out. Um, anything that was orthodontic, uh, orthodontics I was referring out. Um, anything that was uh, orthodontic oral surgery I was referring out. And then um, not a lot else. Just a couple of things here and there, you know. Um, I had a friend, uh, actually another Texan that taught me a phrase about carrying the coffin. So I use um, a number of specialists locally that are good friends of mine. And what we have is cases where they're either, <clears throat> you know, difficult, red flags, something where you'd like to have that backup and it may not come out well. So we'd say, you know, we get them to help us carry the coffin, you know, tell the patient that this isn't going to be the best outcome or the best procedure. And um, I do part of it and they do part of it. And thereby we carry you know, that case to either good or a negative conclusion, but at right. least you're not doing it alone. So that tends to work out really well. Um, I work with uh, some oral surgeons and periodontists here locally, and I basically refer all of my periimplantitis cases to the periodontist. And then anything where there's um, like a zygomatic, you know, type bone cases for the oral surgeons, I don't think, you know, it's not that I couldn't do them, but it's I don't have enough cases to stay sharp at them, and I don't I don't want to do that to my patients. You know, kind of practice on them once every three or four months when I would get a case that actually required it. So, going back to the beginning, I did uh, ten years of solo practice after doing public health initially to help a friend get his public health practice started. Um, during that time, I knew that I missed the military model that I had been in where there was a bunch of dentists. You know, I worked in a clinic with up to 27 dentists at one time. So I contacted all the local, you know, general dentists and asked, and none of them, half of them did not return my call and half of them were not interested in doing anything as far as a group practice. So, right. uh, what I did at that time is I started buying practices. So I bought some practices and I basically would go to their practice 
and just do the work that they were referring out. So it became a much better business model for me. So I would come in and right. do the uh, procedures that I'd have one day a week in each practice. And the general dentist would support me in those practices when I was gone. And we just, we did really well. And I did that for about uh, 10 years as well. So how many, so, how many practices did you own at, at the, the largest number? So I had the biggest, I couldn't do more than three. And what I was doing was I kind of had my house in the middle and I had about a 40 to 45 minute drive, the farthest between any of those practices. So I had moved just so I could be in the middle of those practices. And then I took turns driving to each one of them at different days of the week. And that so, worked out, that was probably the most profitable. So, and I so, never mind talking about numbers. So, so far as um, the systems go that you had in place, because I really want to dig down to the nitty gritty of the, of the way the practices run. Because right there, you were either in a multi-location group or you were in a small DSO. Uh, so did you have any centralization right. of, of systems? Uh, I didn't. But what I did have uh, is we basically could log into anybody's system from any office right. and uh, just remote in. And so everybody had access to everybody's schedule. So if someone wanted to see me in one office or another, it was really easy to do that. You just click a different tab on the screen and it would pop up with the schedule from that office. So we kept the email the same and separate as well. So according to the current definitions, that was a multi-location group practice. Uh, just so that we can keep things clear, that's one of the models you've practiced in. So go ahead and, and right. first tell us about, about this particular mo uh, model and how you ended up growing those practices. Sure. So um, back in 2000, um, in the solo practitioner model, I was doing, you know, the old school, you know, Monday through Thursday practice, like a lot of people did, um, mostly because I had some other business interests that I wanted to take advantage of, you know, on the days off. And so what I was trying to do at that time was make sure I produced about $200,000 a day for $800,000 production. And that was in a, you know, somewhat rural type clinic. So I was you know, I had a really low overhead. So if I could do 50% overhead, for example, on 800,000 in production, that was a good model at that time. Then when I went to the multi, you know, location group practice model or solo practitioner uh, group location, um, that went up probably 40% net because I didn't increase my overhead while I went to those offices because the overhead was already constant from buying them. So I really just walked in and added value uh, because I wasn't adding overhead, but I was adding, you know, a lot of things. So a lot of the patients that used to get referred out or pick a different dentist would choose to stay because we could provide the same, all the services in that office that we used to refer out. So as, as much as so, dentists don't like to talk about dentistry as being business, and what you were doing is you were adding untapped profit centers. And I think that's yeah. a huge point right there is that in most practices, there are untapped profit centers. And, and sometimes that's not even referrals. It's simply things the dentist is not aware of and doesn't know how to right. do it. So they simply slip through the cracks. And I, I see a lot of that with oh, yeah. restoration cases, uh, a, a mm -hmm. lot of it with orthodontics. They're not even referring these cases out. And so the patients are simply going unserved. And so when you think oh, about yeah. Adding these profit centers is not just good for the business, it's good for the patients as well because it results in a more comprehensive oral health care. Yeah. I would say, you know, from having multiple associates over decades, that the number one thing I see missed completely is uh, gum recession surgery. So many people think that it is just, you know, normal to look in someone's mouth and see, you know, two to four different areas of recession around eye teeth, premolars, you know, from overbrushing, from occlusion, all kinds of things. I think, you know, when you get into, because I've, I've done all the different models and tried different things like, you know, sleep, um, airway, you know, whatever those little tangents you can go on in your practice. You know, I've got an IV sedation permit. I, I've done the sedation clinics. Um, I, I've gone on off all of those different things to kind of see how they fit into my model. And uh, all of them work a little bit, but as you said, there's so many things that are there already that you don't even have to go on those tangents for. If you just did comprehensive treatment planning, you don't really need to go that direction. You just need to look harder and treat your patients more comprehensively. So I, I, I uh, agree. I, I think that all of those things are part of a comprehensive treatment plan.
So, you know, for me, um, what I did that for a long time, and you know, my net among three offices, uh, probably, you know, my taxes would say was somewhere between, I think around 800 is what I would net at that time. But I was literally pulling, you know, aside on the road on the way home many nights and just falling asleep and, yeah. and just taking a nap because I was so tired from, you know, working so hard in all those locations. So it definitely took its toll. You know, that was kind of the uh, late 30s, I think. And, uh, you know, I think kind of your 30s are your main hard work years where you're trying to work hard and do what you can to produce as much as you can, you know, for your nest egg. So I think overall, you know, it was worth it, but it was really difficult. You know, I had a, I think I went through three Toyota Priuses during that time, um, you know, just to keep overhead down. And it was interesting because they had this little bar that would show you how much, you know, fuel economy you had for every five or 15 minutes. And when I fall asleep, I'd turn that bar on and it would tell me how long I had to sleep. Uh, when I woke up, I would know how much time had passed that I took a nap so I could get back on the road and travel home. So, you know, while it was very profitable, you know, the, the quality of life decreased significantly, uh, having less time off and working harder. And, you know, so a decade of that made me reevaluate, you know, how can I make this easier on myself? I have a friend in California who's a prosthodontist and he travels to 45 different offices. And um, it's interesting because I think he places more dental implants than anyone I know for a private practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, He's got a contract where basically he pays about $50 for a premium brand implant, which I don't want to bring up without his permission, but he spends a million dollars a year on implant purchasing. Wow. So you figure out how many implants a month that he's placing at, you know, $50 a piece for a million dollars a year. Josh, yeah. I'd love to get him on to the show because that is a completely different model. Um, and uh, yeah. definitely something I'd like to cover. So we'll talk about that off air. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this realization. You get to a point where you're, you're making pretty serious bank for any dentist, right? And mm -hmm. you look around yeah. yourself and you say, well, I'm, I'm working myself to death. This, this just can't right. keep going. Tell me about that epiphany, when it came, why it came, and, 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 and what that ended up looking like in the way that you changed the way that you were working. Sure. Well, for me, it um, came down to some side interests. So I'd been a, a serious tennis player when I was younger, and um, I had lived overseas and played over there. And then when I got back to the U.S., I was burned out, so I kind of gave it up. And then my, uh, I have four children and three daughters, and when my oldest daughter got to be, I think it was eight and a half, uh, we kind of needed a family activity. So I just picked up my tennis racket and I built a tennis court on one of the places that we had mm -hmm. and I started doing tennis and really that was the change. Uh, I decided to pick my family time over my work time and uh, go ahead and start spending a lot of time investing in my family now that I had worked as hard as I could, you know, when I didn't think they'd need me that much. I basically right. changed and uh, went into the family model. So in the family model, I cut back uh, my hours, I cut back my time, I basically just didn't try as hard in the offices. And I um, set myself up so I could have a lot of time on the weekends to, you know, go to their tournaments and uh, the evenings, you know, I would go to the tennis court. Yeah. Some, you know, we kind of had a permanent court time at 9 p.m. just because that's when every, everything in our family seemed to make it uh, when it wasn't busy. And then in the summers, they would come to the dental office with me and uh, hang out a little bit and then they'd go play and practice. I had two daughters at that time that were both playing. They would come and have lunch with me and then they would go back and then when I got done I um, changed my hours in the summers from uh, you know like the normal eight to five or nine to five to seven to three so I could get done at three so I could go to the tennis courts with them. So I did that for a number of years and then um, as I as they got older and I had another daughter who started to play um, we were starting to get a lot of recruiting from, you know, other schools and places. Uh, so my daughters have kind of lived all over the country, you know, going to academies. And uh, there was a school from my original hometown, which is here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that recruited us. Um, it was a private school that cost, you know, some money. So basically we could come here and, and play tennis for them, change the community to a bigger community with more opportunity for them. And mm -hmm. 
so we decided to make that move. So at that time, that's when it was the hardest because I was actually living in uh, a different state than my family and driving to these different locations. And it, what, what the hard part was is the original clinic that I had, um, those patients just didn't want me to leave. And right. so I slowly was weaning them off. But for a year, I basically lived by myself in that other state and drove back and forth home on the weekends and evenings, which was a little over an hour at that time. So Josh, so, um, yeah. one second, this is, um, so this is interesting. So you, you first started off with basically what, what might, might call um, an academic group model um, military wise, right? Then you went right. into a small group multi-practice location. And then really what you did is you, you, you kind of pulled back away from that and you created something that a lot of us are calling lifestyle practices. But then everything kind of came full circle and you turned your lifestyle practice into something that was kind of the same kind of albatross you were trying to escape with, uh, with, with the multi-location group practice where you were always on the road, always somewhere else besides where your family was. So talk to us a little bit about that time. And, and I, know, I know for a fact you came to a realization at some point where he said, look, this just isn't working. This isn't what I signed up for. Uh, talk to us about what you did during that period and, you know, how, you, how you've kept from repeating that same cycle. Well, I did have um, a couple little uh, hiccups or blips before I went into private practice. So mm -hmm. um, I had a friend from dental school that looked me up when I was living in Germany and got me to come and start a public health clinic where we only saw pedo right. and AIDS patients. And that I forgot was, about public health. Yeah. Yep, it's so I started, that's, that's what got me back to the Midwest United States from overseas. Mm -hmm. So I came and worked with him. And then I, w I uh, wanted to go into private practice. So I went in with, I had two offers and I kind of worked with both. So I went to a rural practice with a guy and he would not even let me have a place to hang up my coat. So I realized, well, this is going to be a little bit more of, a, you know, I like the mentoring aspects, but I like to at least be treated like a partner. I don't have to be treated like an equal, but a partner is good. Um, so I chose not to work with him. The other dentist said, you know, I need you to work for me for six months, kind of a six month working interview, and then you can buy in. So he was always publishing his numbers. And at that time, uh, what he said is you get no patients, you work seven to seven and you get anybody that walks in his emergency. And, uh, I thought, well, you know, I don't mind hard work. So I did that because I, I wanted to try private practice and I, I didn't mind. So the issue that came up was that emergency patients generally tend to be highly productive patients. You know, they, right. they're wisdom teeth, they're, you know, root canals, whatever it is. So within, you know, four weeks of 12 hour days, I had, was producing more than he had in his practice after 30 years of practice. Yep. So suddenly the numbers stopped being published. And uh, when the six months came, I said, well, you know, I'd like to buy in. And he said, well, you know, I need a few more years. And uh, at that point I said, well, that's not going to work for me. And he said, well, then you're out. And I said, okay. Mm -hmm. So that's when I went into the solo practice for 10 years. Then I went into this multi, you know, focal, the lifestyle practice, as you said. And then um, I turned it around again, and I was thinking uh, that I was going to retire around 40-ish, which you and I talked about kind of yeah. off the air the other night. And, uh, you know, just first, go and do something. Right? What's that? First retirement. Yeah. By the way, what was your number? I'm curious. But I, I already shared mine. Mine's 4.5 to 5 million. My wife and I are there. What was your number? Right. Um, you know, to be honest, I knew I was always going to work. So I didn't really have a number per se. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had that. I had that number. Uh, I, I can tell you I had that number. Um, so I don't know. Maybe a lot of I've asked that question before online a few times, and I see everything from um, you know a million dollars. Like if you bought my practice for a million, I'd never do dentistry again. Up to I think I saw someone that was thirty thirty million dollars. You know, right. um, from a, a lady that. And in California that I was teaching a course with Astra, what her number was. And she said, $30 million. And I said, what would you do with it? And she's like, oh, I just travel all the time. I'm like, I don't think people really realize how much like, you know, $4 million is. If, mm -hmm. if you took your 4% a year interest on that alone, 
yep. you can live off of that income and be higher than you know the normal income of any American in the United which, States. Which so. is actually why why four point five to five million is my number. I've actually done all the math with the types of investments that I use, and that gives me around mm -hmm. a two hundred fifty two hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year residual income, and I'm I'm pretty happy with that. I don't have to have a lot more than that. Everything I own is paid for. So, right, right, and I and I think that's. Um, a lot of it uh, right away is just paying down debt so quickly. You know, I, I've taught a lot of investing courses. In fact, that was one of the things I had to do in the military as a side job was uh, they, they wanted me to teach investing. Everybody that showed up was actually debt. They, they needed to know how to pay off their debt, not how to invest their money. So it was eye opening for me that people live so differently than I did. But um, well, you, know, you, can, you can make an argument there that uh, it, it's, it's very advantageous to know when it's more important to pay off debt than to save, you know, being able to run a, a breakpoint analysis between paying off your student loans at 1% versus investing over here at, you know, three or four or 5% return. When is it a no brainer just to leave the debt alone? And when is it something that you can't really outperform in the market? So, I mean, there's, there's some validity there, but I, I, I agree. Well, with you. I'll, I'll tell you, I, <laughs> For me, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. You don't invest until you have no debt because investments are not a guarantee and debt is a guarantee. So I would take a 1% return that's guaranteed over a potential 33% return like last year that was mm -hmm. not guaranteed because the market does not perform the same every year. I would, I, me personally, pay down the debt 100% before you ever put a penny in because love, that money is... <laughs> Well, and you that know me well enough to know that that's what I do, but I, I, I love right. it. Yeah. If you look at um, uh, the, the Tony Robbins book uh, about investing, it is very interesting because there's a chart in there that talks about if you are out of the market for a short period of time, that if you miss just the days that the market's up, you actually have no return for the year. So you have to be invested every single day. Mm -hmm. to actually get the return that you have at the end of the year. Because there's too many days when the up or the down for those days make the entire year for the market. So for me, I don't care if it's a half a percent. Until you're debt-free, you do not invest. Now, that being said, I'm a big believer in six months of fixed expenses before you ever you know, start paying that off either because things happen that we just can't control. You know, We get injured, we can't work, and... Uh, uh, you need six months, you know, in general, usually to get back on your feet. Absolutely. Then you snowball it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So getting, so, getting back anyway, to going, going back to the model I'm in now. <laughs> Sorry about that segue. No, it's okay. Um, Let, let's let's yeah, just so, super GP model. Talk to us about the benefits of it and the detriments. Um, mm -hmm. just, just explain the entire thing. Sure. Well, I would say the, I'm going to talk about the detriment. I think the detriment um, is that unlike a specialist, we do not get to focus solely on one thing and become the very best at it in, right. you know, a three to six year period. It takes us, you know, because we're, we're doing this training, you know, part-time or full-time and, and in pieces, I think it takes um, probably six years to get good at any particular specialty when you're not working at it, you know, 20, 24 hours a day, like the specialists are for their you know, three to six year programs in school. So I think it takes us a lot longer. I think that without specialists who are willing to train us, um, you know, cause I had a lot of oral surgeons, orthodontists, you know, periodontists that I taught with and trained with, if they would not have been willing to share their knowledge with me, I could never have actually gotten to the point where I knew how to do it and knew what the level was that they were working at. So I knew what my expectation level had to be. Because, right. you know, the rule is if you are doing this specialty work in an area where there are specialists, you should be performing at their level, you know. Absolutely. So that, that's the ultimate goal. So um, the practice model I had is kind of went off on that tangent about retirement is I was thinking about retiring. And one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, had said she wanted to go to dental school. So I decided to refocus on the clinic that was in our hometown. I sold the others. Mm -hmm. I have about 147 patients that are still traveling from other states to see me right now that right. um, I'm very grateful to have. And um, I took this clinic that was in this city and made it 
an eight-chair office instead of a four-chair office so that I could have enough room for more dentists and uh, more hygienists. And then what I do is I basically run three assistants and I had typically run three chairs, but I've given one of those up to my new partner who mm -hmm. wants, who's a little bit more productive than the previous associate who is strictly an associate and not a partner. Right. And uh, that model tends to work well. Now what my next phase of life is going to be that I phase myself out is my partner takes on more responsibility and uh, if my daughter chooses to, who knows, you know, um, those, those instances are interesting to me how a lot of parents will set something up for their child and their child does come back and then some marry and don't come back mm -hmm. or they just have a different practice philosophy than me, you know, as the parent. And so they don't want to join back in my practice model for that reason. So while I have it here and available, I, I don't think that there's any guarantee that that's going to happen or I, I have no idea if uh, my oldest daughter will want to come back to this practice or not. But um, it's available. You know, I think that's the goal of every parent is to help your kids as much as you can if they want to. You know, from my perspective, um, a new graduate coming out with debt, to walk into a practice and just kind of be given my percentage of it mm -hmm. um, with no debt is probably a fairly good deal. But, you know, love being what it is, uh, she's married. If he wants to go somewhere different, uh, I could see her giving up that income and that security just to, you know, make the marriage work. So you never know. So what you're, what you're bringing up here um, it is interesting to me because I think all things are not equal. And I don't think there's any way coming out of dental school, she can ever fill your shoes and become as productive as you are. There's simply no chance of that at all. Um, and, and the reason I say that is as I was looking at um, my options for my practice, whenever I got to my number and I said, okay, I can sell this practice and I can move on to the next phase of my life. I still want to be a dentist, but I, I've made the money I need to make to retire, my first retirement, as I like to call it. And now I want to enjoy life a little bit more. My kids are the right age that I need to do that. And all these things went into it. So I started looking at people to buy my practice. And the, the same thing came up over and over and over again. Every time I had somebody look at it, they could not, they could not produce what I produced because they couldn't replace my skill set. I was told that I would have to have both a prosthodontist and either an oral surgeon or a periodontist to replace what I do because most dentists simply don't have the skills I have, which I found just absolutely amazing because I mean, I hang out with guys like you. I hang out with people who are far more skilled than I am. And I consider myself a little baby dentist, you know? So mm -hmm. the, the, the problem for me in the, in the, the super GP model is that, it's very difficult to sell it to just one doctor. And so if you do create something like that, you do have to have like an eight or a 10 chair office. You know, I, I do what I do out of three chairs. You know, there's not a lot of right. people who can. Right. So I think say, I say you have to, just to be productive. I, I, I think you have to work three chairs at, at least. And when I was focusing kind of mid career more on ortho, I had to have that fourth chair, right. you know, um, it just depends on your procedures and an extra assistant. Yeah. And yeah. And it takes a high amount. Anytime you get into the surgery, especially the oral surgery, it takes a lot of assistance. Even for IV, I, you know, I'm required to have three assistants in the room. So, it's, it's, you know. it's the level of assistant training that's required too. Um, so there are some cost. Um, there, there, there's some cost of opportunity there. Whenever you're looking at doing this higher level stuff, you know, I, I typically produce between you know, 800 and $2,500 per hour. I know that there's a lot of dentists out there who, who produce that a day, but right. costs are much, much higher. The equipment that I have to do, that I have to have to do what I do. Um, the training my team has to have to carry all of this off, you know, without mm -hmm. everything becoming a total clusterfuck is right. high. And that means they're very, very well paid. I have people trying to scout my team all the time, <laughs> you know, because right. they work yeah. in my office. And so they have to be highly, highly skilled. So talk right. to us a little bit about those parts of your business model, about the, 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 the super GP business model. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I had an orthodontist uh, friend that uh, taught me early on. He said, you know, the hygienists, they're just smarter than the regular assistant. So mm -hmm. he hired hygienists to be his really? assistant. Yeah. And, and today's um, rates, can they, you do that? <laughs> uh, you, you can, if you're productive, yeah, you can. And so, um, I had two hygienists that worked with me and they did all my anesthetic and they, um, 
you know, basically got a lot of my crowns mostly seated for me uh, before I would come in the room. And um, they did, you know, the ortho and they allowed me to probably run one extra chair a day. So if you figure that, you know, if you can run one extra chair and increase your production 20 to 30% for that chair per day, it's pretty easy to pay those hygienists, you know. And a lot of them are usually mid-career, you know, 30 to 40 as well. And they're kind of burned out. You know, hygienists typically hit that burnout at about six years. And they just realize, you know, um, six to 15 cleanings a day every day for the next 30 years is not exactly what I want to do. I would like to have a little bit of a break, you know. So they like to, and they cleaned all the teeth of all the patients as well. So every patient that came in, you know, they just took turns on who got to do the cleaning. And so we, you know, with the amount of implants I do, you know, we do implant cleanings every three months. So we had implant cleanings every single day in between all the other patients. So they got their cleanings, they got to do their anesthetic, they also got to do restorative. So I had two of them and another one and we carpooled every day, you know, back and forth around. Uh, we had lunch together every day. It was very, very tight. So my overhead was definitely higher. Um, I, as you said, you've got to pay them a lot, but they're going to help you produce a lot. And so it's really, really worth it to do that. But, but only if you get out of their way. Uh, that, there's a lot of dentists who bring on an assistant and they won't even let them make temporaries. I'm, I'm utterly baffled by that type of an attitude. I, I don't know about you. I actually pulled off the state's laws and this is a real annoyance to me. I read my state's laws. I read my practice mm -hmm. act. I want to know what I can and cannot do. That's the only way to stay out of trouble. Right. And so I know them pretty much by heart. Like I can, I can generally quote what section something's in. So right. I looked at that and I said, what can my team do? And they do every single thing they can do. I train them to do it and I make the absolute mm -hmm. most use out of them possible. Anything that they can oh, yeah. that crosses that line, we don't do. And, and that's my, right. that's where I come to come in. But if they can do it without me, they are going to do it without me. So I, I, I know that yeah. you, you're the same way. I wish that we could have our hygienists give anesthesia here. That's still one of my, my pet peeves about Texas, but it's so good in so many right. other I can't complain too much. Right, right. Yeah, you know, Doc, um, it's kind of funny you said that. And I don't know if you saw me look up, but uh, give me one sec to go off camera right here. I have the actual typed up notes on what all my assistants can and can't do in the state for the exact same reason. Here's yep. the second half of it. And uh, you better believe the highlighted areas are the important ones for me. And they do absolutely everything they can. And the other thing that I have right here is the most common errors for malpractice lawsuits um, that are law. Do you, so do, you have your standard, was, uh, do you have your standing orders typed up too? One of the things I did when I first started my practice is, you know, you have to have a standing order in Texas for an assistant to take an x-ray. And so I just wrote up a little scenario and said, if this, then do this. If this, then do this. And it's posted mm -hmm. in the office and it's part of their training manual. That way, no one can ever say I didn't have a standing order in place. As silly as that seems, it, it's actually important because it's the law. Most places, um, you cannot have a standing order because every situation is different and you wouldn't want to radiate somebody for right. the wrong reason. It's the same thing on like assistants who will take five x-rays without telling you they can't get it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have standing orders for that. You know, like, don't do this. Don't do this. But I don't have anything that says we radiate somebody for this reason every time. So mm. um, we have, you know, all I always tell them, all I need is you to come and tell me, I'm going to do this. I usually say, is this the case? They say yes. And I go, do it. And that's it. It's like a, you know, a 10 second gut check just to make sure that it's not there. Because sometimes, you know, they'll go, I was going to take a, a pano. And I'm like, did you look in the chart? And they mm. go, well, I didn't see one. I'm like, well, I know I took one last time. So you aren't seeing it. So you're going to break the standing order because you actually don't know. So that's the reason that we do it that way. Um, but I think everybody has, you know, well, we do this and this and this for that right. reason. Um, but I, I hate to put those kinds of rules in writing and then have them used against me, you know, no, I, and, and I get that. And, and, and I should, I should, I should uh, elucidate a little further there. It's important to have your morning huddle and, uh, and see yeah. what's on the schedule and discuss those cases at that time too. But um, right. for, for a limited, if someone comes in with throbbing pain on the lower right-hand side and the assistant messages me from the room and it's got GCD, 
I tell them, you know what to do. Take a PA, take a bite wing. You know, it's, you know, see, my practice model is different. I come back and I go, well, maybe we should have a CT scan instead so we can see if there's an underlying cause of pathology, if they're looking to place an implant at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, if it's been longstanding and they have facial swelling, you know, I might want to see if the submandibular space is infected. I love um, that we can actually get infected. clinical on the podcast. We, we don't I allow have. it in the group because it just becomes such uh, an absolute shit show. Right. But it, it's right. cool to be able to talk to people about their different clinical perspectives. And yeah, I, I totally respect that, especially now, in, an implant yeah. heavy practice. Yeah. Right. And the other side of it is they may say, I can't afford it. So you take the PA anyway. But yep. at least, you know, then I've said, this is why I would like to have this. And the staff have a better idea of when they would message me in my office. I have, I'm sure you have two monitors as well. So Absolutely. I have one that's kind of clinical and one that's kind of personal. And I, I use Blue Note. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but I like that program for clinical messaging. And I'm, they would ask I, me, do you I, use, uh, I use Modento. PA? Modento? Yeah. yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, I'll have to get you a demo. Um, well, I'm fairly happy with the Blue Note. You know, I actually wired my own lighting system uh, early on, and it worked great. But cool. digital stuff, you know, is so much easier now. Um, it is. And, and listen, I have between, yeah. The only issue I have with uh, these digital messaging systems now is that I used to be able to put a light like in my lab so I could go to the lab and someone could turn on the light. Nowadays, I'd have to have a PC present there to get that same result. You don't have a PC in your lab? uh, Not in my lab because I want it to be a clean lab. You know, we produce dust. You know, I I have a lab where we do work for other dentists. You know, we... Mm -hmm. I have the the mills, the sintering ovens, everything. So we do full arch zirconium and uh, you know, it can, it can be dirty, you know? Right. I, I actually have my, I have my little nooks um, wired in. They have let the wires going through with some silicon blocking everything up. All I have in the lab mm. stuff is the monitor and right. a repeater for the USB. And so then you can have a USB mm. keyboard in there and do whatever you need. The computer's actually outside of the, of the dust area. But um, right. anyway, I still have to get up to your yeah. to your place and check it out, man. Oh, I know. We were so close. <laughs> so close to we, we were. I mean, you were in town and I ended up yeah. being sick. I, I don't know if you, uh, we, we had a big family day planned too for part of that. And my wife was competing, which I don't know if you saw or not, but she, uh, she took gold. She won. Yeah, she, yeah, beat a she won. And I was home yeah. sick. <laughs> she, yeah. She's awesome and forgiving. So she didn't hold it against me. But um, right. yeah, uh, I don't like being sick. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Yeah. It's, you know, for me, it's, um, you know, I, I'm on the road traveling a lot, you know, trying to do what I can to help people. And uh, the time changes, you know, I'm still, right. even though it didn't seem like much, it's just when you get up for that 2 a.m. flight, you know, to, to get on the 5 a.m., it's tough. Hey, so, man, the struggle is real. You'll notice every time I ask you about what time something is, I say CST. Yeah, yeah. It just becomes such a habit because, you know, all of the guys that I talk to are all over the nation, all over the world, really. So right. give us a real quick rundown, a recap of the Super GP model. Give us your benefits and detriments and, and why you think sure. it's the ultimate model for dentists to, to aspire to. Well, I think as a, um, as a GP, uh, you know, one of, I, I guess I had one thing that made me choose the Super GP model. I got to a point where I had a minimum of 28 hygiene checks a day. That was in my first 10 years of solo practice. And I literally wanted to shoot myself. And uh, I, you know, I told my staff no more than 26. And one day I came in and they had 40 hygiene checks plus my two columns myself. And I, I, well, I would use a swear word that I used that day, but let's just say that I lost my bleep. And, um, I pulled the staff aside and I yelled at them in a manner that I didn't care if they all quit right then and right there and never walked back in. And a lot of it was that I felt it was unethical treatment of the patient to go in and charge for a comprehensive exam, uh, you know, in 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I could not do an adequate job on these. And um, I, some of my other practices at that time were hero practices where they go in, they take, do that 45 second exam, they find nothing because they're not looking for it. 
-hmm. And the only time the patient comes in is when they have pain. So they take them out of pain. So the patient loves them because they never have anything wrong. And the only time they come in, the dentist fixes something and they miss everything. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the recession, airway. I mean, there's orthodontics. There's so many things they aren't even looking for, even thinking to look for because you know, the hygienist is like, I got my patient waiting in there. I, I can't wait for you anymore, you know? And, and I just, I think that it's a, I think it's a very common model to do, you know, 20 plus hygiene checks a day. And I felt it was unethical. I could not ethically bill these people for a comprehensive exam when I knew I couldn't perform one in the time I was given. You know, I, I'm a big believer that you don't do anything to any patient that you wouldn't do to yourself or your own family. And I felt it was really wrong. And so, like I said, I really lost it. And that's when I said, I'm done with this model. If I have to do this, I'm going to quit. And um, so that's when I started buying the practices and trying to work with some other dentists to spread that out. Uh, I felt it was too much. But the Super GP model itself is basically seeking out advanced training in the areas that interest you. Um, I know there's a lot of people that like airway. I think it's highly valuable. It is not a profit center. I don't care what anybody tells you. Um, the same thing is true of medical billing. You can spend a lot of time and in some cases get a lot of extra money, but you're spending an enormous amount of time for those, just those couple of cases that are going to be highly profitable to you. And I've seen some of the medical billing practices of some practices who do that. And I don't think that it's ethical billing because they're billing a different amount to the medical insurance company than they do to the dental insurance company. Um, I do like unbundling of services, which is what they do in medicine. I think that's great. I think that that's, fair to do in medical billing. Um, and I think that can be part of the GP model. But I think that um, being able to do more procedures so that your patients don't have to drive away or seek out another practice that does those is a great GP model. Um, just get yourself trained in the, the basics, you know, any type of surgery that you can do, um, any type of advanced diagnosis that you can do is going to be very, very profitable. As you said, you had to do oral surgery and prosthodontics um, to hit the 800 to $2,500 an hour mm -hmm. uh, because those tend to be the things that your patients are going to need that are also going to be ethically billable at that rate. You know, right. um, I know many oral surgeons that, and, and actually just prosthodontics, periodontics, you know, any type of surgery type procedure, um, they can be far more uh, per hour than us, even at that rate, because they're set up to do it so much quicker. They have to have this massive team. Um, but I, I think, you know, it, it can be done. Well, the, but, simplicity, uh, for, the simplicity of only having to have what you need to do a very limited range of procedures means your yeah. overhead nece necessarily is going to be lower. So absolutely. That, that's, I think, one of the detriments of the super GP model is you really have to be cognizant of what you've got on hand and what you need to do what you have to do. And, and you do, by necessity, I think, have to limit yourself in some ways. For instance, I don't do any endodontics because it takes too much chair time for the amount of money I can mm -hmm. make. Right. Um, I do do the endo. Um, I, you know, one of the first clinics I worked in in Germany, um, we had a bunch of GP contractors and their contracts said they didn't have to do any endo. So um, I basically worked in this hospital with oral surgeons during the day. And then when I, at the few days that I was in this office, I had to do all the endo that they would save up for me. And they didn't even have to open and medicate. So I basically, my first year out of dental school working in the military, I was doing a ton of molar endo, you know, old hand file, you know, no instrument, no rotary, nothing. And so when you can do it by hand and by seal, you know, fairly quickly, when they give you a rotary instrument, you really just go, ah, you know, it's, everything becomes easy. So I would tell you uh, as your friend that if you're not doing your single canals, you're, you're, you are losing a profit center because oh, no, absolutely. I know that's, yeah. that's what associates are for. Yes, exactly. So I would, I would add this strongly to the super GP model. You cannot do it without an associate, at least one, if not two. Right. Um, that's the only way you can get away from those hygiene checks and those fillings um, that, are, you know, I, I probably do a dozen or two fillings a year. Usually they're build up under a crown that I'm doing in addition to something else. But I would say that's true. The super GP model is definitely more uh, overhead intensive. I think you have to have one or more associates or partners, whatever you whatever you want to do. 
and you have um, to be willing to feed them. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't actually do any of the exams in hygiene. So they feed themselves. But, but to my point, um, you, you have to allow them to eat. A lot of, a lot of yeah. guys, well, you, you, you know the problems with the associate chips. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do the things those other guys are doing. Long and right. short. Right. So, yeah. So they do the hygiene checks and I do the consults. And that's kind of how we divide it up. And then they'll ask me to step in if there's something that, you know, they have a question on. Um, and for the most part, anything that's not my super GP, you know, surgery, ortho stuff, uh, I just have them do it. So, um, you know, the, they end up getting some crowns on their schedule that they don't know are coming. And sometimes they're kind of like, you know, I didn't have enough time to do that. And I was like, well, it looks easy enough for me. And sometimes, you know, that, that is a little bit of an issue because I think we tend to work more efficiently with fewer right. tools, you know, whereas, you, you know, how I many burrs does your burr block have in it? I use nine for every single procedure in the, in the practice, Ex except for solar, uh, except for uh, surgical extractions. I, I, I lied there. I, I have actually 10 burrs in my practice. Yeah. Um, I'll show you, I'll show you mine. I bet you, I, I bet you I'm, I, I bet you I'm at six. Um, and uh, that was one of the things. So my new partner came in and she saw my setup and there were three instruments and she said uh, like, Where, where's your instruments? And she, she pulled me aside and she honestly told me that she thought maybe this wasn't the right practice for her because I wouldn't buy any instruments. And right. uh, I, I was like, no, I just, that's all I need. And so she started watching me take out wisdom teeth with the same three instruments. You know, I had a retractor and uh, you know, a molt number nine and one elevator. And I can take out any wisdom tooth in the world with those three things. And, um, you know, she just couldn't, couldn't understand. And I, and I said, well, when I did my training, and, and I think this is great knowledge for anybody. When I was in surgery, oral surgery training, if you put the instrument down, they took it away and it left the room. And so <laughs> yeah, they, you, they basically said, you don't you go back over here, and forth. Your retractor over here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So, you know, like, they were hands or something. Yeah. Um, I will say this thing. Oral surgeons have phenomenal training because they do not bullshit at all. And uh, they literally would take your tool and it would leave the room. So, if you, you know, if you couldn't do it by the end with what you had, then they took it from you and did it while you had to watch. And that's no fun. Mm -hmm. So it was um, it was very interesting. So they just said, you don't, you, you need to know how to use your tools properly. If you don't need to know how to use them, that's why you keep going from more, one tool to the next, to the next back and forth. Right. It's like painters and sculptors for fillings, you know, like I just need like one burr to cut it down after I overfill the filling. But mm -hmm. painters, you know, they go back and forth and add a little here and add a little there and tuck a little and um, surgeons are, they basically, they just, you know, cut and push and that's it. Right. And so once you learn, I only really need one elevator. I just need one retractor and I need one thing to move the tissue out of the way. And I use one burr. And mm -hmm. like you probably, like you do for surgery, use one burr. Right. So um, I use a surgical ink 957 for all of my oral surgery. Um, I have mine's other burrs a, for those extreme mine's circumstances. Mine's a surgical ink 557. Someone tried so to the reason I have burr too. And I was like, nah, you don't need that. Crap. No, no. So the reason I use that is because I have, I use these Practicon elevators that are like a 301, they're 88 mm -hmm. bucks. So I like these, I use the purple one. And if you cut a C shape in a tooth, like let's say it's an upper wisdom tooth and it's, you know, near the infratemporal fossa, hanging on the sinus, whatever, and you, you don't want to push it somewhere, but you do need to get it out. You can cut that little slot in there with that 957 and it's the exact tip size of the 301 elevator. So I can you just stick rotate it in that little slot and just, no, I just stick it in the slot and I literally can pull it straight out because it locks itself in because of the wedge effect of the shape of the elevator. So the 557 is too big for me to do that. So that's why it's better for sectioning, but I don't want to have two burrs. I only want to have one burr. So yeah. um, I use the narrower burr for sectioning uh, as well. And it, it's fine. But if I was just sectioning teeth, I'd take your 557 every time. I like it because I can cut through a crown with that sucker. Oh, yeah. started the Done. You know, I actually use uh, 245 for doing the crowns because they're like a penny compared hey, to the surgical hey. 957. One burr. 
One burr. I'm telling you, the assistant has it in the handpiece when I come in to cut a crown off. So that's why I have it because it saves me a little money. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and that's a great, it's a really great point. So Josh, I, I think this has been a fantastic interview. I want you to think yes. of the one thing and only one thing. You're on your deathbed and you want to tell something to a young dentist just getting out of school, assume normal training, you know, meaning they still are learning amalgams and all that stupid crap that they're never going to do. And um, you're going to tell them one thing and then you're going to die. And that one thing you tell them is going to secure their success in the rest of their career. What is it? Find a mentor that's practicing exactly like you want to in the future, who's willing to help you. Yeah, okay. That's the one thing back. It, it's uh, if you need to know somebody who's doing what you already want to do. You like in before you go to dental school, hopefully you found a dentist and asked them if, if they liked it. Same is true. If you know what you want to do in the future, whether it's surgically related or pedo related, what, whatever it might be, find someone who's doing it and see if they like it and ask them. And uh, if they are, see, I, I've, I had a mentor that was fantastic and in the business side. And, uh, you know, he actually works for me when he feels like it. He's 84 and, and he has his license and he will come in and work if he feels like it any Friday. I just have a standing rule. If he shows up, he can work. He can do anything that we have on the schedule. He can take it. And um, I owe him. He really, uh, it would have taken me twice as long to get what I did if he had not advised me for free for most of my career, just periodically, you know, picking up the phone and saying, oh yeah, you know, this is what I think. You know, I had a few lunches every couple of years. It's just phenomenal. You have to have somebody that is doing what you like or that you respect that you want to learn from. So, yeah, my, and, uh, my mentor died um, two years ago, just around Christmas. Yep. Your Christmas yeah. is a little sad time for me because I, um, I, I, I don't have heroes, but I tell you, I kind of worship the ground that guy walked on. He was a no bullshit kind of guy. When he thought you were screwing up, he would tell you. He and I did not agree on everything. For instance, he is a total troglodyte or was total technophobe, hated it. And you know me, I love my technology. But um, yeah. true words never spoken, my friend. Well, thank you yeah. for joining us today. Thanks. And um, guys, yeah. if you'd like to meet Josh, and um, by the way, I should say he also teaches. Uh, so you can contact him on Facebook, but you can meet him in person at the Dentistry Live Summit, June 26th and 27th in Las Vegas. And if you'd like to know more about that, just click on the link down below. Josh, thanks for your hey. time today. And everyone, thank hey. you for joining us for another episode. Hey. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.